I'm Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and you're listening to Fifth and Mission. It's true, school is out for summer, and kids should be celebrating the end of the school year. But as the pandemic continues, graduation ceremonies have been canceled and other rites of passage have moved on to Zoom meetings. The state and local governments are starting to roll out reopening guidelines, but one area that is still very much in question is what will happen in the fall when school is supposed to resume. This week, the Chronicle obtained draft guidelines from the state that hinted at what the next school year may look like. And joining me to discuss it is longtime Chronicle education writer Jill Tucker. Uh, Jill, I am going to take this opportunity to speak on behalf of every parent in America and say, please tell me that school can resume in the fall. That was a really good please, but I don't think I could say that. (laughs) It will resume. It may not resume in person. What is it going to look like? I actually think it will be similar um, to sort of how we always have done school, that every district, every school is a little different. Um, and so I think when we when we come back in the fall, you're going to see some kids actually all going back to school and have it look very similar um, to what it used to be. Maybe some face masks, um, things like that. It's going to depend on, you know, so, sort of how their counties or, or their states have been doing um, in terms of the coronavirus. Um, and then I also think at the other extreme, you're still going to see a bunch of schools and districts that are going to still be online only. And uh, because either they are they have had a recurrence of the coronavirus or resurge, um, or because um, they they need to still prepare for phasing in uh, in person learning. Um, I think a lot of schools are going to open up with a hybrid model um, and have some kids coming in. Uh, some kids doing fully digital learning because of, of situations that they might have with their own health or, or their, their families. Um, and, uh, you know, and some kids kind of going in and out doing digital learning and, and then coming in, you know, part of the day or part of the week, uh, for in-person learning. It's just that these guidelines that we're looking at and what we're hearing are, you know, that, that we're still going to be dealing with the pandemic and it's still going to be contagious and people are still going to be at risk, um, for serious health problems or death. And um, it, we're just going to have to be uh, still super careful, according to these guidelines, uh, teachers all wearing masks all day. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we're still looking at. We are not out of this and schools are really scrambling to figure out how to operate under these conditions. So why don't you break down the guidelines that you are able to obtain? What what did they say specifically that schools would have to do to reopen? Yeah. So again, these are draft guidelines, um, but we're expecting the real guidelines to come out probably next week. Um, I don't expect that there's going to be a huge amount of change. I think it's going to be more detailed. But really, you know, they're talking about having hand washing stations. Um, So that means schools are going to have to put them all over the place so that kids in between classes every hour or however they structure it are going to be able to wash their hands. Um, It's going to mean six feet of separation at all times. So if you think about a class of 35 kids, um, how do you space out desks six feet apart? Well, you can only have maybe 10 kids in the classroom. Um, so does that mean that kids are somewhere else? They're on the, you know, they're in the gym spaced out six feet apart. Um, but it means that throughout the day, whether that's at lunch, whether that's recess, whether that's passing time in hallways or whatever, or, it, or when they arrive or leave, 
they're going to have to be six feet apart. And so that's a huge logistical nightmare to figure out. Um, also, they're talking about screening staff and students as they come to school for coronavirus symptoms. So that may be asking them questions about whether they have a cough. It may mean taking temperatures, um, you know, in, in schools where you have 2000 kids, uh, you know, it, it, it makes me wonder how they're going to pull that off. But those are the recommendations. Um and uh, as I said, face masks on teachers at a minimum with students recommended to wear them as well when they can't socially distance. Um, you know, it still means no football games, no big crowds, um, you know, things like that. So these are just some of the things that we're seeing. Um, we're still looking for some of, some more of the details and what schools are specifically looking for or what, what do they do when a staff member or student uh, test positive for coronavirus? Do they shut the school down? Do they shut the district down? I think that's one of the biggest unanswered questions that we have right now. Um, because in the, in the spring, of course, any case shut down the school, if not the district with the coronavirus, I mean, immediately. So if that's still going to be the case, you can imagine schools opening and closing and a lot of chaos uh, for families. Well, I, I also, I, I think, you know, the two words or the two phrases I say more than anything else is either A, hey, you're muted when I'm on a Zoom call, or B, to my son, get your mask up because kids don't want to wear these masks. And I just, they don't want to stay away from each other and they want to have recess. How realistic is this? Well, I mean, imagine... A classroom with kindergartners, even if there's only 10 of them, how do you keep kindergartners from putting their fingers in their mouths? Or their nose or somebody else's nose. <laughs> or hugging people. You know, these little ones love to hug. Well, we all love to hug, don't we? But but the little ones really love to hug. Um, and, you know, keeping them away from each other when kindergarten is all about socializing these kids and, you know, teaching them how to play together and the idea that you're going to have to teach them how to play together when they can't share a ball, they can't share blocks, they can't share a book, they can't go on the carpet and do circle time with their teacher. It's kind of, I mean, it's just, it's horrifying trying to think of, you know, how, like all the things that we've taken for granted in terms of education, um, you know, you, you can't do um, under this, uh, under these uh, health restrictions. Well, and, and the idea that these students would be um, tested or, you know, temperature checked or looked over before they come into school. Anyone who's dropped off a child at school time knows that's going to be very hard to do anyway. And to do it in a socially distant manner, I just, I, I am, I'm having a hard time seeing how this would actually work in any efficient way. Well, I can tell you that that is exactly um, the response I'm getting from district officials across the entire region. I do not see how this can work in any efficient way. I mean, you know, they, they are struggling to figure out how to do this. And the reality is everybody wants their kids back in school. The kids want to be back in school. I mean, it's a little easier maybe for the older kids. I think it's, you know, because you can... I think it'll be a lot easier to create a hybrid model for high school students, you know, something along the lines of what college schedules they would have anyway, you know, where you go to class a few days a week and, you know, you have other, you know, maybe online stuff or discussions or things like that. Um, but for the little ones, I, I, the elementary schools, especially, I think it, it's incredibly difficult because how do you have elementary kids come, you know, part of the day or part of the week? 
when your parents are working or, you know, whatever situation you have. It's, it's, I think, um, there's so many things to figure out and, um, there's about two and a half months to do it at the most before schools start opening. Um, you know, I've been covering education for more than 20 years and I, logistically speaking, I do not see a way to do this. And, and, I, and I'm hopeful that over the next couple months and as we start getting more information from the state or we start figuring out the state budget, you know, some of these things will start to fall into place. Um, but yeah, it's just right now, everything's a, everything seems a bit impossible. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I want to ask you about how much this is going to cost and how we're going to do it when we know the state is losing so much money. But first, let's take a break. We'll be right back after this. Before we went to the break, we were talking about the incredible lengths to which it looks like schools are going to have to test people, uh, monitor people, keep people away from each other if schools are going to reopen. But there's also a lot of cost that goes to these sorts of measures. And we know our schools, our public schools, are not funded like they should be in any part of the state. How How is it even possible to, who's going to pay for this? Yeah, so I, you know, the the reality is there are a lot of questions about that, and um, you know, you sort of ask like, how much is this going to cost? And the answer is a lot. And uh, how are we going to pay for it? And the answer is no one knows. And and so I think that you know, not only the logistics, but the cost of this is is such a critical piece of information right now um, that uh, we just don't have. I mean, they're talking about budget cuts of about $1,200 or more per student. And, and we districts already were in budget cut mode. And so if you're talking about cutting what they had last year, when in fact they're going to have to pay for armies of custodians and cleaning supplies and people to take the temperature of these kids and masks and gloves, you know, for the nurses and not to mention nurses, um, you know, to be at schools for when kids don't feel well or, or these, to, you know, be able to isolate them. Um, all of these things cost money. So that so school officials are basically saying, I, I, I spoke to some this week and, and I, I had to sort of ask them a few times because I, I couldn't really believe what I was hearing. But basically what they were saying, that there is a real possibility if these budget cuts go through, that they will not be able to open classrooms for in-person learning simply because they can't afford to do it safely. And and that to me is kind of mind-boggling because even with the worst budget cuts, they they you know, maybe they just have to have more kids piled in the classrooms and it's terrible and they have to cut art and librarians and, you know, sports or all these types of things, but they still open the doors. But, you know, to be in a situation where they can't figure out how to open the doors because they just simply can't pay for all of the things that they will need to, for health purposes, is kind of mind boggling to even think of that as a possibility. Well, it also really, I think, exposes the problems we have with inequitable funding because you know there will be school districts where people will be able to open because they have more money than other school districts. And it just seems inevitable that it's going to perpetuate this inequality in education that we have in, in the state. 
Oh, definitely. Because you can imagine in the wealthiest communities where they're already donating $5,000 per student, you know, in parent donations, you know, okay, what's another 1200 or, you know, here's a donation of PPEs or, or, you know, masks or whatever. Um, yes, you will definitely see that in many of those school districts, but for a school district like Oakland or East Palo Alto, or, you know, even San Francisco, um, you know, they're, unless they get an infusion of cash through a federal stimulus or some other form, um, it's, it's, it's going to be a really tough situation opening those doors. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, in districts predominantly of low income students or students of color, um, you know, that means they're going to get set back even further. And those are also the neighborhoods where the parents are probably the most likely to need to leave the house to get to work too. It's very, it's very frustrating. Given all of the budget cuts, you had a quote in one of your stories, and, and I forget who it was who said it, but that the budget cuts alone in a normal year would probably necessitate a 19% increase in class size anyway. How do, how do those, what are the dire predictions that you're hearing out there? Yeah, I mean, so they're talking about based on the proposed budget that the governor had in May because of the economic downturn from the pandemic, um, they're talking along the lines of that type of cut would result in 57,000 teachers laid off or, you know, the these other, t- you know, 120,000 other non-certificated, you know, staff members, or inc- increasing class sizes by 19%. I mean, already districts with before the pandemic, were already grappling with budget cuts that would result in layoffs, or, um, uh, you know, cuts to programming. Um, you know, the, the, the typical cuts that we hate, but that we're somewhat used to like art or music, um, or libraries. Um, but what we're talking about here that based on what the governor believed the budget to be this month, um, we're talking 57,000 teachers laid off or, or these other drastic cuts. And, and in, in, when you are trying to do six feet of separation, you cannot increase class sizes 19%. So it, you know, when you need to to have 10 kids in there, how do you do that? How do you, how do you do distance learning and in-person learning like these hybrid models when you've laid off 57,000 teachers? So I, I think that there's just a lot of questions of this. It just is, as one person told me this week, the math just doesn't add up. It just doesn't. It, it's, it's a negative number. So you can't, you know, how do we do it? So it's, it's kind of dire. It's, you know, I, I feel like this is a really depressing podcast, but um, they all seem to be nowadays. <laughs> I know, I know, right. So, um, but I, I, in all my years of covering education, I've, I've never, never seen a situation that I felt was, I don't want to use the word hopeless, because that's a really awful word but that was so dire and and so um difficult to see a way out of yeah and and i i have faith that somehow society will find a way to find the money to to open schools um you know because i i don't think we as a society can envision that not happening uh i just don't see how at this point what about the status of distance learning? Because I, you know, I feel like um, at least at least our family's experience, it it hasn't been terrible, but we're 
two parents who are here with one child who's, you know, who's relatively doing okay in school and doesn't have any major, you know, learning disabilities that we know of. But we also have access to iPads and, you know, we're very lucky in that regard. How is the state doing with distance learning overall? And 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 maybe if, you know, is there a glass half full way of looking at this that we have two and a half months to get better at it? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think people are starting to see, you know, the positives out of that. In fact, there's, you know, there's a, a Mill Valley Middle School that I was talking to that um, they uh, – They've been um, the students have been having Zoom meetings once a week with a class in Germany and they were learning another language out of Afghanistan with somebody that's there. Um, And they're you know, they're doing all sorts of really interesting things online and they have teachers that are just super motivated to make all these really cool things happen um, using distance learning. It's not ideal, you know, Zoom classes with Zoom is difficult, but they're doing really cool, interesting, exciting things. Um, And then you look at other places, um, like in um, Tracy, where basically they just said, yeah, we don't have, we're not going to buy a a bunch of computers. So we're mostly doing, you know, um, written packets. And, you know, we might have teachers check in with kids on the phone, you know, every now and then, or people can email them. Um, So it's really been a mixed bag of what experiences people have. Of course, it requires internet access, it requires computers, and we're still struggling to get that to students. Um, So it's, it's, I think that there are some really beautiful things happening in distance learning that we could take away from this. Um, You know, we may be able to take away from this the ability to put computers in the hands of every kid and and internet. And we're seeing that more and more and more with donations and and other types of things. Um, So that's a positive to come out of this. But I do think that um, the disparity um, of distance learning has been very vast. Um, And there doesn't seem to be ways to make sure that the quality of education, the quality of teaching is happening um, with distance learning. And we're not, you know, there's no testing, there's no, there's nothing happening this year um, that, that would compel teachers or, or, or kids to sort of really make the best of this and, and continue learning. So I, you know, I think there's been a lot of kids that are learning and doing cool things and a lot of kids that haven't been learning anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's always true that, you know, your kid might get a great teacher or they might get one that's not engaged. And that's not just true of the teaching profession. That's true of all professions, I would say. It seems that distance learning really exposes that even more because we have some friends who are like, our teachers are amazing. They're they're on top of things. They're looking to see whether they log in. And then we have other ones who say our teacher is allergic to technology and doesn't want to deal with it. And it it seems like there aren't a lot of standards or, um, ex, you know, general expectations from classroom to classroom even. No, absolutely. Even within schools. You, yeah, that's true. You you saw that disparity of teachers who just sort of said, yeah, I'm not doing it and sort of threw in the towel and others who just embraced this and districts that embraced this and just jumped in and did it. And, um, you know, and it was it was pretty impressive. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of families that I talked to a lot of people, you know, like your, your friends that that were just like, yeah, their teacher just didn't do it. 
and you know they would they would email assignments or they would you know put it on Google Classroom but there was no instruction you know like on Zoom or or on YouTube or whatever you know thing they wanted to use and so yeah we saw a lot of that and and it'll be interesting to see if somehow next year um you know they they have a lot more buy in because it isn't just you know like okay well we just have to get to May or June um you know just oh well we had 7 months okay um you know if you're actually starting the school year like that or incorporating distance learning you can't just throw in the towel you know it, you just can't and so it'll be interesting to see how things evolve during the summer to really pull everyone up, all the teachers, um, get the kids ready. Um, because I do think distance learning is going to have to be part of the equation. Um, and this is what I'm hearing from virtually, you know, every district in the Bay Area. Somehow they're still going to be incorporating distance learning and it has to be better. Mm -hmm. What does, you know, the, the teachers union is notoriously powerful in California, the, the California Teachers Association. What does the Teachers Association say, both about reopening and the safety of teachers, but also you know, the quality of instruction given um, the inability to do it in person? Yeah, I think, you know, they're they're all trying to work together to a certain degree to figure this out. Um, I think they want their teachers, you know, their priority is the teachers and their safety and their working conditions. Um, so, you know, what I am hearing from them is that, uh, you know, any changes to what teachers do has to be renegotiated. So that throws another wrench into this whole scenario. They had to do that even this spring. Um, and so the union is keeping, you know, pretty um, clear, uh, keeping an eye on what is happening and um, and any of these things that the districts want to do, they're going to have to negotiate with the teachers, you know, so whether it's a hybrid model, whether it's, you know, how these classes operate at schools, um, the teachers union, each local union is going to have to renegotiate that. So, you know, we're getting a pretty clear message from the union that um, districts can't just wing it. Um, they're going to have to make sure teachers are safe and they're going to have to negotiate whatever conditions the district decides to implement in the fall. Is there anything else that you want to mention about um, what we can expect maybe in the next couple of days coming from the governor's office and the state superintendent's office? Do you expect more clarification um, coming soon? Yeah, definitely. So this the 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 governor is going to release the the um, Department of Public Health guidelines. It's going to have a checklist like we've seen for hair salons and and car dealerships. Um, we just haven't seen it for schools yet. Um, and uh, it'll have very specific. It's a long checklist. I think it's about ten pages long um, of of specifics of what would be needed for safety and health. Um, and then the state superintendent is going to release um, sort of a guidebook is what he calls it um, that really gives some examples of, of how you would create a hybrid model. What would a classroom look like with socially distancing? How, how can you stagger schedules to get kids in? So, so it'll be much more of like, okay, if you decide to do this model, here are some ways you could do it. So it's going to give schools a little more sort of guidance for how they can do these things that the health uh, department is is advising um, to keep everyone safe. And so we'll see. I mean, I, I, I 
I don't know how specific they're going to get. I don't know, you know, so far the state hasn't given a lot of guidance to school districts because each school district operates independently and has complete local control. Uh, but they're begging for guidance from the state. And so I will be on it next week to share what everybody is telling schools uh, to do or what guidance they're giving them. Um, and, and hopefully we'll have a lot more clarity after that and be able to get some real plans from districts probably within the next month of exactly what they're going to try to do and how much money they'll have to do it. Great. Well, we will look forward to all of your stories on sfchronicle.com when you get that information. Thanks, Jill. No, no problem. Thanks. I'd like to thank education reporter Jill Tucker for being with me today. Thanks to Karen Creighton for producing this episode. And thank you for listening. Fifth Admission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.